Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of In With The Old. We're a video podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. Today, we have another question and answer episode, and to help me answer some of your great questions about God's Word, let's bring in my co-host, Dr. Tim. Tim, what's going on? How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well, Brian. It's been a, a good day for me, a long day as we come to record this, but uh, it's always a joy to uh, to be with you and also to answer questions about the Old Testament. I'm ready. Awesome. Yeah, sometimes it can be tiring. Life gets in the way, but <laughs> yeah, uh, I always come out of these sessions refreshed, so excited to get into it. Me too. Our first yeah. question, Tim, is going to be one for you. Let me okay. reset that actually real quick. Sorry. Our first question, Tim, is going to be for you. It has to do with the Old Testament and the size of the books. I want to read the question our listener asked. He said, I guess in my head, the biggest books of the Bible should be the most important ones that say the most, but sometimes it seems to be the opposite. How can I reconcile this in my head? Why did God set it up this way? It's a great question, right? Asking, are the longest books the most significant books? And... If that's not the case, why did God set it up that way? Tim, how would you answer that question? Yeah, well, that's a good question, Brian, and and one that before we saw our listener ask it, I hadn't really thought about it before. And so uh, there's a lot to unpack here in, in terms of uh, breaking down the question and maybe some assumption behind the questions as well. So uh, let's let's examine a little bit about what we see in terms of the length of the books, their importance, and how we can kind of begin to answer it. So a little bit of a data dump here at the beginning of the question. Uh, the All first right. is, as we think about the length of the books of the Bible, we tend to immediately go by the number of chapters. Uh, but let's just break it down by word. And, and Brian, you actually uh, gave this information. I love it. The longest books in the Old Testament by word count, Jeremiah 33,002. Uh, Genesis, 32,046. The book of Psalms, 30,147. Ezekiel, 29,918. And Exodus, 25,957. So that's by word count. Uh, but if we go by verses, it changes a little bit too. Uh, the most verses, Psalms, that might not be a surprise at 2527. Yeah. Uh, book of Genesis, uh, 1533. Jeremiah, 1364. Isaiah, 1291 and Numbers 1289. Um, so as, as we think about this question, uh, are the longest books more important? Well, I think it's yes and no. And that might be surprising to some of our listeners hmm. that we would say yes, but here's what I mean by that. There are certain books that I think are more important, not in the sense of being more inspired or uh, being more useful even, but more important in terms of being decisive in how we understand the other books. Uh, so for instance, when we think of say the book of uh, Genesis, or we think of the book of Deuteronomy, those books have an outsized influence in other books that follow them. Uh, the book of Genesis uh, is constantly referred to both uh, in the rest of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Same thing with the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy uh, in each of his rebuttals to Satan. Or we could throw in there the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is extensively quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah 53 in particular. The book of Psalms is extensively quoted. 
Uh, and so I don't think it's that those books are more important in terms of uh, in terms of being extra inspired, but they do have an outsized influence on the books that follow. Um, as we think about this too, though, uh, we, we have to think of it in terms of even how those books were uh, constructed or how they were composed. So uh, when we think of the minor prophets, the minor prophets are the books that are much smaller. Um, and part of that is simply because uh, they kind of got done what they intended to do, right? I mean, it's a very particular historical moment. They're speaking into a particular situation. And so it's not going to take as many words or it's not going to take as much space uh, to provide one oracle, say, about rebuilding the temple or, or trusting in God or the judgment that's to come. Part of the relative length of, length of those books uh, just simply has to do with the historical circumstances that brought them about. And so that's something that we need to take into account as well. Um, and part of it is just the way that God chooses to speak to his people. Sometimes God pours out words uh, maybe to get the reader's attention, knowing that being more loquacious or, or just saying more things. Mm. Uh, and, and especially think of this over a long period of time, there's going to be a lot more things to say as God speaks more. Uh, again, it might be to get the reader's attention over a period of time. In other situations, he might be more blunt. He might be more direct or say, for instance, with the book of Ruth and Jonah that are both four chapters, it may be the author's goal to provide a very concise story uh, so as not to lose the reader's attention. So there are a lot of things to take into account. Uh, but to answer the question as simply as I can, in one sense, no, all scripture is God-breathed and all of it is given for our edification. That's true of every single syllable of scripture. But I think we do have to be honest that there are books that do have an outsized influence in terms of uh, in terms of influencing books that follow after them. So that would be my answer to the question, Brian. I'm, I'm interested if you had anything that you would like to add to that. So the only thing I would add is that the context really is determinative. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim, I think you hit on something key. These longer books tend to be books that cover larger swaths of time and so that can be true of genesis numbers we saw both made the link the list of the longest books these are covering large periods of time and so they i think reasonably have a lot of content you also have the prophets that lived a long time so isaiah jeremiah and then the psalter which is a songbook and a collection of a lot of material these longer books can have an outsized influence i think because and you're right to insist, right? We aren't saying they're more inspired, but because of their length, they touch on many more topics. The shorter books tend to be focused in on one issue. You brought up both Ruth and Jonah, which is fantastic. I'm actually doing a Bible study on Jonah with my community group this fall. And nice. Jonah especially is very lasered in on one key point. And so to not bury the lead and to not miss it, there's not a lot of extra material, right? We're just going to get right down to it. Let's focus in on the point of God's relationship to foreign nations. Um, and so because of that, Jonah has a very important thing to teach us, but it only teaches us on that one topic. And so you're right. It doesn't have this kind of commanding influence over all areas of theology. So yeah. uh, I, I would say as readers, let's make sure we're paying attention to the context Bigger books are going to touch on more things, so I would expect them to be brought up more frequently. 
doesn't yeah. mean they're more inspired. It just means they are more all encompassing. And Brian, I thought of one thing that I'd like to add as well as an example yeah. of uh, a book that covers a particular topic, but is much longer. I think of the book of Job, um, you yes. know, where there's several different discourses uh, as, as the book progresses that all sort of culminate eventually in, in Job's kind of challenge and then uh, the particularities of Job. Um, as we think about that, it's focusing on a topic. But because of what the topic is, it really calls for a longer consideration than, say, Ruth mm -hmm. or Jonah. So even the topic that the author is covering, uh, some topics you just need more words to explain or more words to uh, kind of go as deep as you would want to in those. All right. For our next question today, Dr. Brian, this is going to be a question for you. And the question is this. What are the feasts of the Old Testament? And are they important to know for modern Christians? Yeah, that's a great question. The feasts primarily come up in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, i.e. the books we skip over sometimes when we're in the Old Testament. <laughs> so we're aware they're there. They're not quite Tolkien's like elvish poems, things that like we go, okay, they're there and we'll, we'll just skip past them. But the feasts of the Old Testament are important. And so... Uh, Tim, when this question came in, I thought it was a good question. And I went, Hey, I teach like a two hour class on the feasts, but let me try to break it down into like a, a five <laughs> to 10 minute answer for us. I wanted to start with a quote. And so I'm going to look down here to read. And this is from John Swain. When he talks about feasts and festivals, he said, feasts are regularly occurring community events that recognize God's work and presence with his people. And that's going to be important. We'll talk about kind of all these different feasts that are celebrated in the old Testament. But that's their goal, right? A chance to recognize God's work and presence with his people. I loved how Swain put it, so I wanted to share that quote with you all. Now, the feasts are described in numerous places in the Old Testament, but some of the big chapters for us might be Leviticus 16 and 23, Numbers 28, 29, and Deuteronomy 16. Clearly, they're also in other places, but these are some of our kind of big tentpole passages, as it were. Now, when we look at the feasts, Three are going to be ones that require you to journey to Jerusalem, right? We'll call these pilgrimage feasts. And then we also have some additional ones that did not require you as an ancient Israelite to travel to Jerusalem. So let's start with the pilgrimage feasts. The first one, and this should be not a surprise to any of us, is Passover. These tend to be the ones we know, right? So Passover is the celebration of God's deliverance of the people in the book of Exodus as he passed over their houses. Um, by passing over, right, God allows the firstborn of Israel to live. He takes the firstborn of Egypt. So this was a feast that was celebrated by traveling to Jerusalem. And during it, a second feast took place. So not technically a pilgrimage feast, but because you're almost always in Jerusalem, you celebrated it there. And that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, so this was a week-long remembrance with the consecrated of the coming season. It's an extension kind of of the Passover. So although it is labeled separately, it's connected to it. Um, so you have the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You also have, as a second pilgrimage feast, the Feast of Weeks. Now, average Christian, that might not mean anything, but if I gave you its Greek name, you'd absolutely recognize it. The Feast of Weeks is known in Greek as Pentecost. And so this might be a surprise, right, Tim, to some of our listeners, that Pentecost is actually an Old Testament feast. 
So uh, a little blurb on it. Um, it's named for the seven weeks separating uh, it from the Passover celebration. So Pentecost in Greek means 50 days. Seven weeks is 49 days. We'll just round it to make it easy and call it 50. So we call it Pentecost, right? It's a celebration of the entrance into the promised land and all the riches therein. We'll come back to the significance of these feasts for understanding the New Testament, but can you already see some of the beauty of what Pentecost in the book of Acts celebrates? This coming into the promised land and celebrating the gifts of God as his people are now where they are supposed to be. So real quick to finish the pilgrimage feasts, we have Passover, we have Pentecost, and then we have the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is a commemoration of the wilderness wanderings. It was sometimes called the Feast of Ingathering because this is when people come together at the harvest time and it's the final feast of the Israelite calendar year. Now, outside of those, there are two other feasts that did not require a pilgrimage but are still significant. The first is the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah. This is going to be the New Year celebration. This is the beginning of the new agricultural year, not necessarily a calendar year as we're used to it in the modern world. Uh, and then secondly, you have the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Uh, this is the most holy of all their feasts. It's not Hanukkah. I mean, I think most people probably know that, but uh, Yom Kippur is the high holiday of the Jewish faith tradition. Right, This is the one time of year where the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for his people. So those are the two other kind of significant Old Testament feasts. Now, interestingly, because the Old Testament ends right in the 4th century BC, you still have some development within that faith. And so you might have noticed I didn't mention Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a post-Old Testament development, as is another famous holiday, Purim. Now, Tim... We know that this comes actually from a story in the Old Testament, even if the feast isn't initiated. It comes from the story of Esther and the celebration of the deliverance of God's people. So you'd have this beautiful celebration, not really a sacrifice, but a celebration of being alive, of God's deliverance. It's not quite Jewish Mardi Gras, but it could get, uh, it can get kind of <laughs> rowdy. It is a celebration of life and all the fullness therein. You then also do have Hanukkah. Uh, so Hanukkah, this is a, another reason why you should read the intertestamental or Second Temple writings that are kept for us in the Catholic uh, canon, the Deuterocanon of the Old Testament, because this is something that comes out of the book of Maccabees and the, uh, the revolt that he led against Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the rededication of the uh, temple after it was profaned and it comes from a legend wherein there was only enough oil for one days but it kept on going and the light remained lit for eight days and so that's what hanukkah is even though it happens near christmas has nothing to do with uh, that type of season and it's not anywhere near as significant as christmas is for the christian tradition there are other holidays if you want to look throughout all of jewish history one of the fun ones i put in tim just for us is uh yom nikon uh Yom Nicanor. Apologize for that. Uh, that's the day before Purim. It was a celebration of the defeat of the Syrian general Nicanor by the Maccabeans, but uh, it's not typically celebrated anymore. It's just rolled in together with Purim. <laughs> now, so that was part one of the question. What are the feasts? There you go, listeners. Probably too much information, but sorry. <laughs> there you go. Now, why does it matter? 
Well, I think there's at least three reasons for us as Christians to at least be aware of these feasts. First, I think they prefigure Jesus's ministry and work. The Day of Atonement. I don't think you can understand the cross. I don't think you can understand right what is happening through that final week of Jesus's life. I don't think we understand the book of Hebrews and the argument it is making about this high priest if you don't understand the Day of Atonement and what that signified, what that did for the people of Israel. And Christ taking on that sacrifice, becoming both high priest and sacrifice for his people, right? There's a lot of beautiful theology. There's a lot of beautiful prefiguring, I think, in this feast that we should understand. So that's the first reason. Second reason is because I think it helps us prefigure and see the value and beauty of the church. As I mentioned earlier, I don't think it's an accident that the church begins at Pentecost, a celebration of coming into the promised land. What stronger symbol of what the church is now supposed to be? This beautiful entrance into the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is already but not yet. We have entered into the metaphorical promised land of God's blessings, right? Right there in Jerusalem, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. So I think we will appreciate more acts and what is going on through that book if we understand the Feast of Pentecost at the very least. And then lastly, I think it just helps us understand the culture and values of the world. It is very important to understand what a society ritualizes in a festival, in a feast, in a ritual, because that reveals at a deep level beyond what they just say is important, what they truly treasure and value. These feasts were designed to force your average Israelite, right, who didn't necessarily read the Tanakh on a day-to-day basis, didn't necessarily have that option. But it forced them to, in their day-to-day practice and how they organized and set up their lives, to focus on God, his provision and work in their history, and what he is continually continually calling them to do going forward. So I strongly recommend go in, dig into the Old Testament, dig into the feasts especially, because I think they will help you understand both the New Testament and the Old. So that's my very long, short answer. Sorry about that. (laughs) Uh, Tim, anything I missed or anything you want to correct real quick? No, nothing you missed or, or anything to correct, but something just to, to add as, as we think about those feasts, they were meant to be formative. And Brian, that's what you're saying in, in the sense that the Israelites who went through them, they were formed by them in terms of having their memory stoked and, and their lives truly being based around in their calendars and, and the way they sowed and reaped. It was all uh, based around these feasts and what they represented. And I agree wholeheartedly with what you said in your last point, Brian, that as we think about our lives, we might not recognize, but our lives are really uh formed in a similar way by what we do, not just by what we say we believe. And Mm -hmm. for listeners who might be in a more liturgical tradition uh, that has a little bit of formality or follows the church calendar, uh, for some evangelicals, they might look at that and say, well, that's just ritual. It doesn't matter. But the reality is uh, the feasts that we even celebrate today, we base our lives around them, whether it's, you know, a secular holiday or whether it's the 4th of July or whether it's Thanksgiving or whatever, we tend to shape our calendar and shape our life around those things 
Same thing true for the Israelite people, except they were intentionally seeking to shape their lives around the works of God in their history. And so it was more than just time to celebrate. It was a time to be formed as a worshiper of Yahweh. And to that degree, I think we can wholeheartedly say, yes, we should learn from that example. And even if we don't celebrate the feast, I don't think there's a New Testament obligation to celebrate those feasts, but we should certainly understand how Christ fulfills all of the feasts. Uh, and ultimately, we look forward to a feast, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, as we yep. think about feasting together in the new heavens and the new earth. So great information, Brian. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and for our listeners, if you want to kind of get into the mindset of how did these form kind of the the culture uh, of the Israelites, I want you to think of our how we do it in our modern culture. If you go into Target, if you go into your local grocery store, there's always a <laughs> section about the next coming holiday, right? Yes. So right now uh, you've got stuff for Halloween, then it's going to be mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, then it's going to be Christmas, and on and on and on, right? It's always going, here's the next major signpost. The feasts did the same thing for the ancient Israelites, but instead of going, here's the next thing to spend money on or to right, <laughs> give candy to kids on, here's the next element in our nation's history with God that we should be focused on. Here's the beginning of the, harv uh, of the harvest as we go out right and begin sowing our fields. Here's the end of the harvest where we gather back in. At each step, it was supposed to focus not on just another like, yay, we get a day off from work, but wow, this is a God who has walked with us. So uh, next time you're in your grocery store and you go, I can't believe they have those things out so early, recognize that what it's doing is trying to build the anticipation and focus on that holiday. That's what the feasts did for the ancient Israelite in their day-to-day -day lives. Brian, uh, as we bring this episode to a close, we have a third question, and I'm excited to hear your answer on this. Uh, this is oh one of those... <laughs> Yeah, th this is one of those that uh, is, is such a fascinating question. I'll throw it out at you. I've heard people argue that the genealogy uh, in Genesis chapter 5 is the gospel story in miniature. The names in the genealogy represent the gospel story. Can you unpack that for us? Is it true that the gospel is found in Genesis 5? So I won't bury the lead. Let me lean into my microphone. No. <laughs> All right, so that's the short answer. Let me give you the longer answer. So this idea was put forward by uh, Chuck Meisler. He's probably not going to thank me for giving him credit for this, but he did. Um, so he put out this idea. He's like, hey, if you go into Hebrew and if you look at the roots, and that should, by the way, anytime we're, we're being careful readers of the text, it sounds like I've discovered something hidden in the roots of the words. Doesn't mean they're wrong and full of it, but let's start being very careful because we can very quickly get into trouble as we do here. And he said, hey, if you go to Genesis chapter five, starting at Adam, going through Noah, look at the root meaning of all the names. It's the gospel story. And listeners, uh, I have it in front of us. It's starting with Adam, then Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. So those are the names he's looking at. And he says, if nailed you it, Brian. Take... You nailed those names. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's also part of the fun of the Old Testament, right? I was trying to read all the names. <laughs> but uh, uh, Meisler said, if you translate those into English, here's what you get. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down, teaching his death, shall bring the despairing rest. Oh, it's the gospel story. Uh, help me, I'm going to faint. The problem is, listeners... 
that's wrong. <laughs> that's wrong on just about every level. Uh, I'll focus on two key problems. First, that's not how language works. Insert the gif of Han Solo going, that's not how the force works. And then second, those are bad translations of nearly every word. Aside from Noah, he got Noah right. But um, nearly <laughs> other other name is mistranslated to get that meaning. So let me just quickly dive into a few of these things. First, uh, Meisler is arguing that these names should be translated as having meaning. But words are translated according to context. Every word does have multiple definitions, or nearly every word does, right? Context is determinative. Names, especially, are interesting words in any language. Our names mean things. Tim, your name means something. My name means something. Um, I believe Brian is related to Lord in uh, <laughs> uh, Irish. I had it looked up and then I forgot. Tim, what does your name mean? Timothy. Yeah. A good so name. Something like the honorable one or a person of honor. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tim, every time I say Tim, am I meaning the person of honor? Or do I mean you because it's your name? <laughs> right. right. So this is the first problem. He's arguing that what are clearly names because it's a genealogy and in a genealogy, you have names. He's arguing that the names are both names and the meaning of the name. However, no language ever uh, uses that. Michael Heiser, who is an interesting figure in his own right, uh, wrote a very good article, and I thought very understandable, kind of breaking down this. And he says, the flaw here in this argument is a failure to honor the writer's context and intent. Yep. If it's true that names in this genealogy are proper names, then that is how the writer wanted them to be understood. So I hope that's, I, I hope we're tracking listeners. If these are names, they are names. You can't put meaning behind them because the writer hasn't told us that that's what we should do. And if we're looking for secret codes, we have a deeper theological problem. We're probably venturing into Gnosticism or some secret level of knowledge. As I said earlier, beware people that say that we can find meaning in roots. Uh, there is something in language studies and in translation, right, called the root fallacy. Roots are where words have derived from in linguistics, but they may or may not have anything to do with the meaning of their derivatives, right? Languages evolve, languages adapt. And in English, we certainly wouldn't say that just having the letters B, L, and T conveys some meaning to the word. For example, built, belt, bolt, and blot all use BLT plus a few vowels but they have nothing in common and they certainly don't share anything in common with a bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich. <laughs> There's no root to write uncover or discover here. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of how, again, languages work. So that's big issue. Number one, that's not how languages work. Issue two. Um, we'll just walk through very quickly. Tim, stop me if I go off the deep end here, but uh, <laughs> he has misunderstood the names in Hebrew or He's given one possible meaning with no reason to prefer it over another possible meaning. For example, he starts with Adam. He says that means man. If we read Genesis, though, we know clearly the word comes from the word ground, Adamah, and it can mean the person Adam, or it can mean man as in mankind, humanity. He's maybe communicating that with man, but it could easily, just as easily, mean humanity or man. Seth. 
sorry, I'm going to look away from the camera listener so I can get my notes here. Seth is something that we don't know the root from, actually. He puts forward an argument that doesn't make a lot of sense. It could be related to the Akkadian for substitute. So we could just as easily do that. Enosh, just like Adam, probably means man or human in some form. Kenan is probably the diminutive form of Canaan. I'm sorry, of Cain, rather. So it would be Little Cain, uh, which that's an unfortunate name to be <laughs> carrying, I'm just going to say. Uh, and if so, that would be uh, the meaning of the word would be something like acquired, not sorrow. Because we can go back to Genesis 3 and see that that's where Cain gets his name from. She has acquired a man from God, or Eve says that. Uh, Mahalalel, praising God, not the blessed God. Uh, this is a participle, not an adjective, so he misunderstands grammar right there. Jared doesn't mean to—it uh, does mean to go down, but it could also be the Akkadian for slave. Also, simply because you have a verbal name does not mean you perform the action. Rush Limbaugh is not always rushing, right? It doesn't matter if that's a verb, it's his name. Okay. Uh, Enoch can mean initiate not teaching. Uh, Methuselah means man of the spear, not his death shall bring, bring most likely. Uh, and Lamech, Tim, have you, I had to go in and do research on this for this podcast. His argument yeah. for his rendering of Lamech, which listeners, he says Lamech should mean the despairing. Do you know why he says that? Because it sounds like lament in English. <laughs> One, yeah. 2000 years later. <laughs> Again, that's not how any of this works. Um, Lamech is a pausal form of the Hebrew Lemech, um, but it's unclear what it means. It could be the title of a foreign god. It could be uh, the Arabic for strong youth or oppressor. This is from Gordon Winham. Um, just because it sounds like a word in English, though, you probably can't move that meaning across. <laughs> and then Noah. Well, he got Noah right. Noah means rest. <laughs> so there you go. So I just want to put it out there. Using his logic, if these words have other meaning, with equal or better support, <clears throat> here's what Genesis 5 could say. Human substitute, man, acquiring, praising God, slave, initiate, man of the spear, strong youth, rest. <laughs> it's nonsense. So... uh Listeners, I, I, I'm trying to keep this light, but this is something that's come up in the academic classroom before. I've had students, very committed Christian students, go, have you seen this cool thing? And I want to I want to honor something here, and I want to strongly talk against something here. I want to honor our desire to see all the fullness of God's word. I, I think we get tripped into these things because we go, I don't want to miss out on any of the revelation of God. And I absolutely love that heart. But... Is God a God who deals in riddles? The God of the Christian Bible. There are certainly conceptions of God out there in the world where God is a trickster, God is a riddler, and you have to figure these things out. But is that at all consistent with the God of the Bible? Or is he a God who speaks clearly? Is he a God who speaks consistently? Is he a God who even says in Deuteronomy, I've quoted it several times, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed, right, that are made clear, belong to us. God is someone who speaks clearly and consistently. And I'm not saying that's always easy to unpack, but I don't think he's a God who hides away secret knowledge for the enlightened or the illumined to go and find. That smacks really of us trying to take some pride in ourselves of like, ooh, I discovered or ferreted out something cool about God. 
rather than trusting God's goodness and grace and mercy and thanking him for revealing himself. So I think it, I, I, I appreciate that we want to know God in his fullness, but I think there aren't Bible codes. And this is just one example. This is probably one of the most famous ones for the Old Testament. There are certainly plenty of other things. Um, and I, I, Tim, I want to say I appreciate people. We've talked off camera before. I appreciate yeah. people that are into like, ooh, conspiracies are interesting. Like maybe there's secret things out there. I appreciate the heart and desire to see connections because I think there are connections because we are God, we worship a God who's created all things. So I think all things do connect at the end of the day in him, but beware anything that is going to lead you down in a pursuit of truth, but does not bring comfort and joy that does not push us to love God and love one another more. Let's say for sake of argument, Chuck is right. There's the gospel message in Genesis five. So what? What does that actually do? Does that yeah. change anything? Does that make us have a prideful attitude and going like, I can't believe those ancient Israelites missed that for so many years? Well, A, you already have the Bible itself saying that. You don't need to add to it. That points out like hey, you guys kind of did miss some things, but not all things. And it elevates us to go like we are more enlightened rather than going, no, we are sinners that are in need of a savior, that are in need of someone to come rescue us from our ignorance and mistakes. So uh, just as a general call, always have your radar up when people are like, I found something secret. I found something special here. Yeah. I'm going to get off my soapbox now, Tim. Um, bring us home on this one. Yeah. No, Brian, thank you for that information. And I'm just going to double down on what you said. You know, one thing that comes to mind is the assumption behind that. Uh, and you you explained it so well, the assumption of those secret meanings is that God somehow superintended something the human author had absolutely no conception of at all. And, uh, and we just would reject that from a hermeneutical standpoint, that we believe that as God used human authors, uh, God conveyed things and, and there might have been shadows in the author's mind that they couldn't have fully understood the significance of it but we don't think that God used them as robots to convey secret meanings through them that they would have had no conception of at all. Um, and then furthermore, as, as we think about God, it really is a statement about God's character that we believe God clearly represents his plan. And as we even read the book of Hebrews, right, that God spoke through his son, that God is not a God who is trying to, as you said, uh, produce riddles, uh, God is a God who plainly wants to speak to us and wants us to respond to what is plainly revealed, uh, at which point I think you're exactly right. It can be a huge waste of energy to try and find hidden meanings rather than meditate and build our, our lives upon the clear meaning of, uh, of Scripture. And in uh, my concern, as I think you would agree, Brian, uh, my concern is that anyone who comes and says, well, I have this secret meaning usually on the other side of that either has something to sell to you uh, or something to try to lead you into, whether it's something that's more of a, you know, uh, you know, a cult like environment or, Hey, you know, there's certain, you know, uh, things I want to sell you some oils or some secret, you know, ingredients, or there's a whole lot of stuff out there, especially with the old Testament, that's based on these supposed secret meanings or root words or Jewish traditions 
that really is uh, predatory. And that's why I think you're passionate about it, and I know I am too, is that people who are in dire straits uh, or people who are just desperate to see something that other people don't see, they're the ones who are usually drawn into this. But the plain message of scripture is the gospel. We don't have to go looking for it in some kind of secret code. It's as plain as it can be. Uh, And so we focus on what is plain and we focus on what is edifying. And I think Paul even talks about this with Timothy, right? Pay no attention to myths or endless genealogies. Why? Because they lead to fruitless speculation that doesn't build anybody up, but rather focus on what is right, focus on what is true, rightly divide the word of truth and let the plain meaning be the plain meaning. Yeah. And, And listeners, as just a personal challenge, if you find yourself excited to dive into a riddle like this, um, let, let God's spirit talk to you. And at least in my life, I, I've gone down this route of like, Ooh, I'm excited to follow this rabbit trail of kind of esoteric, uh, knowledge. <laughs> I've definitely had moments where God said, are you as passionate in trying to figure out how to love people of a different group, different political group, a different orientation? Are you just as passionate to learn how to actually act and love and bring my message to them as you are to this knowledge that only will edify yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, listener, I hope that's helpful to you. Uh, I hope this is, um, I hope actually this introduced you to this idea and then you can now set it aside and never think of it again. That, that would be very helpful. Anyway, listeners, thank you so much for joining us as we've gone through these questions. If you have questions that you'd like Dr. Tim or I to answer on a podcast, please send them in. You can message us to uh, message them to us on Facebook. You can send it into us at in with the old podcast at outlook.com. And until next time, stay cool and stay old.